Support for Georgia College Connections comes from Georgia College, Georgia's public liberal arts university, providing the experience students would expect from a private college with the affordability of a public university. For more information, gcsu.edu. Thank you for tuning in to Georgia College Connections and WRGC 88.3 FM. I am your host, Daniel McDonald. In her book, A White Liberal College President in the Jim Crow South, Guy Herbert Wells in the YWCA at Georgia State College for Women, 1934 through 1953, Georgia College sociologist Sandra Godwin examines the conflicts that arise when a nascent civil rights movement filters its way down to a small women's college in the segregated South. Focusing on the middle ground, college president Guy Herbert Wells occupied between integrationists in the Young Women's Christian Association and the white power structure represented by former Governor Eugene Talmadge, Godwin shows the way leadership sets the table for, or shuts out, transformational change at critical junctures in our institution's histories. Godwin's book, written with Helen Matthews Lewis, is out now from Mercer University Press. Sandra Godwin, Professor of Sociology at Georgia College, thank you for joining me today on Georgia College Connections. Thank you for having me, Daniel. Institutions of higher education increasingly find themselves as the theater for societal conflict and change. I think we commonly see the students, professors, perhaps state governments in the general public as the combatants, but in your book, a white liberal college president in the Jim Crow South, Guy Herbert Wells in the YWCA at Georgia State College for Women, 1934 through 1953, you examine the struggles of this institution's chief executive and student organizations to illustrate our community during a pivotal chapter of the civil rights movement. Why did you choose these protagonists to talk about societies in times of upheaval? Well, again, thank you, Daniel, for having me and giving me the opportunity to talk about this book. I am really excited to be here. The reason I chose these people to focus on is because they represent just that conflict. They represent an activist group, which I'm very interested in as a sociologist, understanding inequality and how it operates and how things that have changed compared to the past and then things that have not changed. And why is that? So as a sociologist exploring these processes and and ways that inequality gets reproduced, I was very interested in looking at the students who were creating change on campus. They were inspiring to me. But then President Wells was their sometime supporter and sometime he was their enemy. Maybe enemy is a little bit strong, but that's why I chose this central kind of drama, if you will, to look at and try and understand what was happening at Georgia State College for Women and how that conflict and the dynamic between a student organization, the presidency of the college and the state government, how those dynamics operated during this time in Georgia history. And I want to ask you a little bit more about these relationships in in general, in generalities. I mean, are student organizations in uh, the presidents of these institutions generally seem to be on the same side or at conflict? And um, how does that either the same or different for these individual people in organizations that you're talking about in your book? Your question makes me think of a recent article by Eddie R. Cole, who is a historian of higher education at the University of California, Los Angeles. And he focused on 
the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee and the president at UCLA at the time. And that article is one of the first I've read, and Eddie R. Cole is someone who is bringing out how we need to look more at presidents and their role in civil rights struggles across time. And he focuses mostly on the 1960s. And so my and Helen's book focuses on the early civil rights era. But I agree with Eddie Cole that higher education institutions are absolutely sites of civil rights struggle. And if we can include more than students in the stories and faculty are sometimes included as well, but if we include the presidents, we're going to learn a lot more about these dynamics and maybe what the possibilities were and what the chances were for progress that, that we failed at. And looking also behind the scenes at the presidents and how they were working for change when we didn't really see it. I think that's what we see with President Wells sometimes, not all the time, because sometimes I think he, he didn't do what he should have done. But I think that Cole's also his most recent book called The Campus Color Line. He is kind of showing the behind the scenes work that these presidents were doing in his archival work. And that's very much how I see President Wells and looking at his letters and the archive, I just, I felt like I had a behind the scenes look at how a college president is thinking about what they should do. Here's a really tough situation. Here's my trial by fire. And what am I going to do? How am I going to handle it? And the archival work is one of the pieces that really shines throughout the book. All of the letters that you describe, the documentation, schedules for the conferences, you know, really kind of transport us back to this time. And even in your last response, I'm so glad that you brought in yet another moment in this long arc of the civil rights struggle um, you know, a long time ago, I used to think of the civil rights movement as being you know, one that kind of really began after the lynching of Emmett Till in Mississippi and his open casket funeral in Chicago in 1955. Uh, but your book examines the period preceding Till's murder. Can you characterize this period of the civil rights struggle and describe the activism taking place then? Yes, absolutely. There was so much labor unrest. And what I discovered and learned in writing this book is just how much and how much this labor unrest and all the activism surrounding labor movements at the time was tied to movements and to activism based on race and racial justice, that a lot of the people who were interested in the labor movement were also interested in racial justice. In 1934, there was a textile strike in this country. It was the general strike, and it was the largest such strike in American history. That was the same year that Guy Wells came to Georgia State College for Women. And then we also have during this time, the New Deal. And the New Deal, according to Patricia Sullivan, another historian, it was the opening battle, as she put it, in the movement to open political process in the South. And this was absolutely tied to early civil rights era activity. And Georgia State College for Women is tied to that history. What we have in looking at the Young Women's Christian Association is a national organization that was really well organized in the Southeast and was part of a small but strong interracial intercollegiate movement. And they were doing things that according to Robert Cohen, another historian, without having the cover, if you will, of Christianity, they would have not been able to do. So 
this time frame was just burgeoning. There was ferment. There was Arthur Rafer, a sociologist at Agnes Scott College for some time, who also ended up writing a highly regarded book on lynching and also another book called Preface to Peasantry. When he spoke of some of the activities he was involved in at the time, for example, the Southern Conference of Human Welfare, which I'll say more about in just a second, he said things were just jumping up. You know, people were just kind of just thinking of things they had never thought of before, that they never thought would be possible, and just bringing together a race and class analysis. And just wanted to say quickly that in sociology and in many other disciplines, we talk a lot about intersectionality and bringing together different hierarchical systems of inequality and looking at them and how they relate to each other. And the focus of gender was not so much there at this time among the women, but the race and class analysis in this time with the YWCA was very much integrated. And you see Lucy Randolph Mason, who was a, a notable person in the Congress of Industrial Organizations. She had a huge impact and role in the YWCA. She came to Georgia State College for Women in 1945. She was at the Southern Conference for Human Welfare. So you just have all of this activity and excitement. And the YWCA and Georgia State College for Women, we can tie our college to that history. Before going on, I just want to say a little bit about the Southern Conference for Human Welfare and why that is so important. This was a conference that had its inaugural meeting in November 20, 1938 in Birmingham at the Birmingham Municipal Auditorium. This was where they were coming together to talk about the report on economic conditions of the South. And this was a report that was commissioned by Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Georgia, as a state, was involved in the conference, and in particular, President Wells attended the conference with Max Waringen, who was a new history professor at GSCW, and at the time, Marguerite Jernigan, who was president of the chapter of the YWCA. So they attended this meeting, which, again, Sullivan says was so much a part of this new energy that was breaking up the solid South, as she put it. So race and labor are both coming together in this time frame. But going back to Marguerite Jernigan, she ends up writing this really wonderful opinion piece on the poll tax in the colonnade two years after she attended the SCHW. And at the SCHW day one, they focused on poll taxes and segregation. This meeting was integrated. They did not follow the, the Jim Crow policy of segregated seating. The second day, Bull Connor, the city commissioner, came into the meeting and said, you're going to have to segregate. And Eleanor Roosevelt was at the conference and she protested and sat herself in the middle aisle. And so we see all of this happening in the Southeast, especially in the 30s and 40s. And I'll just say one final thing about how this related to Georgia in addition to GSCW. Patricia Sullivan says that Georgia was the most promising arena for liberal political action in the South. And that's because she says that we had the election of Governor Ellis Arnold, which maybe we can talk about a little later, who lowered the voting age to 18. It was the first state to do so. And he abolished that poll tax in 1945. So Georgia is right in the middle of this and GSCW, we can make direct connections to all of this effort. Right. And I kind of uh, start to hear these overtones that uh, tie this time that you cover in the book to the present. And that's one of the things that uh, really stuck out to me is, although we're talking about a period that is between 80 and, and 65 years ago, the story is still relevant and places itself uh, very much into the now You're listening to a conversation with Georgia College sociologist Sandra Godwin about her book, A White Liberal College President in the Jim Crow South, 
Guy Herbert Wells in the YWCA at Georgia State College for Women, 1934 through 1953. Godwin will lead a discussion on the book in a lecture presented by the Center for Georgia Studies on Thursday, February 10th. You can learn more on WRGC's Facebook page. But for now, we'll be right back with more of our conversation with Sandra Godwin after a short break. too much further, I do want you to introduce the organization. So please, what is this organization at the center of the story, the YWCA? Yes, well, the YWCA stands for Young Women's Christian Association. It's a voluntary organization, and they had several divisions, but the two that that most people know about are a student division and a community division. And of course, I focus on the student division. There were nine regions and the Southeast was one region and it was headquartered in New York City. The YWCA student division was led by the National Student Council, but there were regional secretaries and resident secretaries. A secretary is a position that today we just might call a director. They weren't literally Um, taking notes, although I have to say that that archive is incredible. (laughs) They took notes on everything. So the regional secretaries led the region, and then the resident secretaries were women who had to be an alum of the university where they were the secretary, and they had to live on campus, and they worked with the students through the academic year as well as a short time during the summer. And the Southern region was a really strong region. Francis Sanders Taylor Anton wrote this wonderful dissertation. It it should be published. It is not, but it's a wonderful dissertation about the Southern region and how the Southern network of secretaries were so much about pushing the limits and speaking out against segregation. They organized integrated conferences where they did not go by segregation. They sat together, they ate together in the 1930s. And so she writes her, her dissertation about the, this region, you know, between World War I and World War II. So in 1934, in the United States, there were 530 campus chapters. They called them associations. And then in 1938, the southern region had the largest region with 156 chapters. So that is a little bit about uh, the YWCA as an organization. And and why might they have been so strong in the South? Uh, Why was this such a fertile ground for organizing and recruiting for this organization? Yeah, I think it has to do with Christianity and that focus. During this time, the student division was very much affected by the social gospel movement, which was a movement within Christianity that encouraged people to think about Christianity, not just about personal salvation, but that you as a Christian had a duty to address social problems. For example, poverty and racism. I believe that is one reason they were successful. So you had these young women's Christian identity that was so important to them. And once they began to see, okay, yeah, this is my duty as a Christian, to address these social problems. It's not just about me. One of the things I talk about in my intro to sociology class is to say, it's not just about you, it's about us. And so we have to take that aspect. I I could imagine some of the social gospelers saying to the young women, you know, we have to take action to address these problems as Jesus might do 
you know, to address social problems that are problems for everyone and that it's our Christian duty to do so. So, and again, going back to Robert Cohen, who wrote when the old left were young, he was talking about how, again, in the South, the YWCA was able to do things that they couldn't have otherwise done without the cover of Christianity. And I think that's one reason they were so successful. I mean, you know, they didn't make huge inroads in the civil rights movement, but I believe it's just like Sullivan was saying, you know, it's a small crack. And even if it seems like you're not getting anywhere, like Miles Horton is saying, and uh, he was actually at the Southern Conference for Human Welfare. He visited Georgia State College for Women. Miles Horton was a co-founder of the Highlander Folk School in Tennessee. He used to say, you know, you have to move in the direction. You're not going to see changes immediately. But I think that because of the Christian focus, they were able to have that long-windedness, if you will, and to be really, really committed to making changes that otherwise they may not have been able to. And in a sense, you know, really setting the table for the moral questions, which were put to a fine point just a decade or so later during the civil rights struggles of the the late 50s in the 60s uh, and really on into today. Now, uh, one thing you do is you do a really good job of talking about one of the personal evolutions of a member of that organization here at Georgia State College for Women. Uh, can you describe the story of Polly Moss and talk about how her background uh, might have been typical for her peers, but then um, how she joined this organization and then became an exceptional example of the young women that the YWCA was trying to help foster? Yes, she was a native of Columbus, Georgia. She was white and middle class, you know, at least before the Depression, <laughs> you know, of course, which is a huge influence on the labor movement. But her family was rather well to do. Her dad worked for Georgia Power, was high-level administrator in Georgia Power. Her brother was an engineer who graduated from Georgia Tech. Her father graduated from Georgia Tech. So they were well-to-do. Her family was a slave-owning family, and they saw nothing wrong with slavery. So this lost cause mentality she very much had when she came to GSCW. So she was white and middle class. And then, you know, the Depression kind of helped their family economic situation deteriorated somewhat, which is one reason she chose Georgia State College for Women because of the low tuition. In, in that she had at least originally middle-class background, she's white, she's typical of the new college student in this burgeoning intercollegiate era. She's atypical though, because she questioned so much of what she had, at least according to Paula Fass, who wrote about young women in the 1920s. So she came to GSCW in 1923. She graduated with a degree in history in 1927. She questioned, as I said, her racial and class status. She, she mentions a history professor by the name of Amanda Johnson, who she said in an interview in the 1980s, Polly Moss did, really taught her as well as the YWCA to question pretty much everything. And that is what she is doing at GSCW as a student. And then when she was hired in 1931 by President Luther Beeson hired her, who was President Wells' predecessor. She graduated in 1927 and taught in the history department for a few years before she was hired as the resident secretary for the YWCA at GSCW. But she, like most women who came to GSCW, the YWCA was one of something they were interested in. You basically became a member, you know, just by enrolling at GSCW. Even before we had any kind of GSCW student handbook or anything like that, the YWCA created a student handbook. And before we had the colonnade, 
Our newspaper was the YWCA newspaper called Triangle Thoughts. Their triangle was their their logo, so to speak. So that's just a little bit about her story. And could you talk about the fact that these were young women in the South and how that kind of expectation on them then with the politics that uh, this very popular nationwide organization, the YWCA, started teaching them and getting them interested in became such a threat to the prevailing social order of the time in the South. Yes, I think a lot of that is because they were white women and the threat was that they were going to lose this kind of purity if they were particularly around black men. So let me just say that the YWCA was segregated as was the YMCA. So the threat is even though they were segregated, they were being introduced to the idea that there was nothing wrong with integration, which segregationists feared, perhaps more than anything, that white women and black men would have children together, and that would be the downfall of civilization. So these fears of miscegenation that's one of the threats that the YWCA posed. A second threat, and very much tied to this, was a threat that civil rights activism was going to bring in communism. So the anti-communist accusation was something that trivialized civil rights activity. So any kind of civil rights effort was met with, that's a communistic influence. So the YWCA was a huge threat to the status quo because they were trying to get rid of racial barriers and trying to bring white women and black men, as well as everyone else, together. And that was a threat to white supremacy. So control of white women's sexuality was a piece of it all together. Even, you know, that's not a part of their analysis, but it certainly speaks to that threat. I wanted to read, if I might, just give you some idea of what some of the threat was. A critic said that the women at Georgia State College for Women, that Guy Wells had permitted them to go from under his sheltering care into an all-night wrangle and intermingling of Negro men and young white students. And she said that Polly Moss, who was their chaperone, well, presumably Moss, had a warped mind and a small strain of Negro blood. And of course, the logic is that if she didn't also have Negro blood, she would have never allowed them to go. So that's just an example of this threat. And uh, uh, on top of the threat of the fear of miscegenation is the fear of communism. Both of those used to silence and squelch and quash any dissent that was there. You're listening to a conversation with Georgia College sociologist Sandra Godwin about her book, A White Liberal College President in the Jim Crow South, Guy Herbert Wells in the YWCA at Georgia State College for Women, 1934 through 1953. Godwin will lead a discussion on the book in a lecture presented by the Center for Georgia Studies on Thursday, February 10th. You can learn more on WRGC's Facebook page. But for now, we'll be right back with more of our conversation with Sandra Godwin after a short break.
When your last quotes, you brought us to one of the other protagonists for your book, the paternal figure there to shepherd them through this formative time. Might we switch now to introduce Guy Herbert Wells? Yes, absolutely. So he began his presidency at Georgia State College for Women in 1934, and he was the second longest serving president behind Marvin McTeer Parks. So he was here for 19 years. And while he was here, he did several things. He relaxed some of the rules. Georgia State College for Women was very, very strict. Uh, even faculty had to attend chapel for a time. Students had to attend chapel. When he came here first, the students had to wear uniforms. And so he got rid of some of those rules. He increased the number of faculty with graduate degrees. 60% over the course of five years. So he did a lot in that regard. He planted trees and dogwoods. He had done this at South Georgia Teachers College where he came from. He was there for eight years. That is now Georgia Southern. And he worked to make that a four-year institution. It was two-year at the time. And still, even when he left, it was very much a teaching training institution, as was GSCW. He was very much liked by people in Millersville and by students, as far as I can tell. And I think faculty, uh, certainly students in the YDCA got upset with him. I, I'm just saying like overall, the campus seemed to get along with him, as did faculty. He was born in Temple, Georgia, in the northwest part of the state. He earned his bachelor's from Mercer University in 1915. After that, he was a school superintendent in Dodge County. Then he went on to get his master's degree from Columbia University Teachers College in uh, 1925. And he was awarded an LLD, an honorary doctorate by Mercer in 1934. He grew up on a farm. He spent all of his professional life in Georgia, except for some of his education. Now, but you describe him in the book as being a, a firm believer in education. Uh, might you talk about that as one of the things that it, it seems like that he was uh, willing to fight for? Yes, absolutely. One of the things that the late John Lounsbury, our school of education is named after him, he said one of the things that I appreciated about Guy Wells was that he was interested in students. He wanted students to excel and, and to succeed. And so this was very much something that seemed to come across to other people. And I was just flipping through my book here, Daniel. This really does speak to him and who he was as an educator. I think it does. When he interviewed Emily Cottingham, who's the resident secretary for the YWCA in the 1940s, he interviewed her for the position. And during the interview, they talked about religion and the influence that it would have on them. And here's what Emily Cottingham Stewart said in our interview that Guy Wells said to her when she was applying for the job for resident secretary. She said that he said, what I really want is somebody who's not going to tell these girls what they have to believe. He said a lot of them come from poor working families. A lot of them come from Baptist families, and they think that dancing is a sin, being happy is a sin. And that's not what I want these girls to come out of here believing. The more you can help them think through what they find out about God and what they want to believe. And if they can't even believe in God, so be it. And the reason I say, even though that's obviously related to the YWCA and Christianity, to me, that means that Guy Wells wanted students to question things. And I think they really gave him a run for his money because I don't really think he was expecting that they were going to question race and class dynamics to the extent that they did and put him in some hot water. And I want to talk also about another quality that he had. And this was a specific political sensibility. And I love the way it is described in the book. Um, it says, President Wells referred to his political skill as knowing 
quote, how to walk through a fodder field without rustling a single blade of grass. Mm -hmm. uh, that's a paraphrase. I went out of the quote there for a second. Mm -hmm. um, uh, you go on to say, he said that this aptitude was of particular use when a, as a liberal administrator, he found himself in a political hotspot with a conservative. Can you fill in a little bit more uh, for me about this political skill that he had and um, if that made him a, a, an exceptional uh, person to focus this kind of study on? Yes, that quote about walking through the fodder field without rustling a single blade came from Howell Cohn, who was a an attorney in Savannah and who very much liked President Wells. They met when he was in Statesboro at South Georgia Teachers College, and he was riding around on the countryside looking for dogwoods to plant on campus. And he ran into Howell Cohn. This is according to Delma Presley, a historian at Georgia Southern. So they developed a friendship and Howell Cohn was really impressed with him because, you know, he just seemed like a, a person who enjoyed nature and was just down to earth, I think is what he meant. So but as far as this political skill goes, Delma Presley also thought that Guy Wells had this ability to be a liberal himself, but work for a conservative state government, and he could play the middle like that. But the middle ground, as I talk about in the book, I would describe it as, you know, a moderate. In this case, what that means for this book is that Sometimes he supported the YWCA and sometimes he, you know, he scolded them and said, you know, we can't do this. You're going to have to leave the race question behind. I mean, he, he really got specific, like, can't we just not talk about race? That's what he said to them, basically. And so they said, of course, no, that's not possible. And they were quite savvy in their response to him. At one point, the young women said, you know what? This is a voluntary organization. Nobody's forced to be a part of it. And anyway, I am the outgoing president. So you might want to send a letter to so-and-so because he mailed these long letters to students at home in the summer. And he said, this is been the worst thing I've had to deal with at Georgia College, which was a trip to Fort Valley in 1935, eight months after he got there. And he said, um, what are we going to do? You know, and so anyway, but so sometimes he supported them and sometimes he didn't. And I think today we might just say uh, bipartisan, you know, someone who who tries to play the tries to play the middle for for better or worse. Right. And I do want to uh, pause there for a second, you know, because so much of, um, uh, again, what shines through is the quotes from these letters. I just wonder, you know, how much of a joy was it to read uh, these insights into the minds of these people uh, through uh, these letters that uh, were going back and forth through uh, so many of the people that you illustrate uh, in this document? Yes, I loved reading the letters and it's what made us change our minds. I mean, I, I will have to say I had to convince Helen that we should write about Guy Wells. And, and Helen, of but, course, is your, your collaborator on this Helen Matthews. Yes, 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 absolutely. Uh, she graduated from GSCW in 1946 and she is a founding mother of Appalachian Studies. And she went on to be an amazing scholar and activist herself. And she was influenced by the YWCA. And this book in, in its YWCA form was her idea. And so after I got into the archive, I said, but Helen, you know, like, look at this, <laughs> you know, look at, look at these things that he's saying. And what I loved about reading his letters is that he made himself vulnerable in his letters. He asked, I don't know what I'm supposed to do here. He would write to the chancellor. Uh, I mean, not every chancellor there. Uh, Philip Weltner was a chancellor who he trusted, but he didn't trust. I don't think he trusted all the chancellors, but um, he said, you know, what am I going to do? He William Hurd Kilpatrick was a dear friend of his. There are many letters they exchanged. William Hurd Kilpatrick is a prominent figure having to do with John Dewey's philosophy and democracy and education and experiential education, which 
all of my colleagues and our wonderful College of Education could speak to so much more than I can, but our College of Ed building is named after Kilpatrick. And I have to believe that he took some classes with Kilpatrick at Columbia Teachers College when Kilpatrick actually worked there. But there was so much vulnerability that he he just said, you know, I I don't know what to do. And I'm going to try to, again, quickly find an example of that. There is something else I should like to mention, which you have no doubt felt. This was to Kilpatrick. My greatest annoyance is having to serve as president during a period when the forces of reaction are largely in control in our state. I do not see when the opposite may be true. It is difficult to maintain one's integrity and hold one's position in the face of such overwhelming trends toward conservatism and what I consider reaction. So he goes on to say, I mentioned these things to show how difficult it is in this position, but perhaps these are additional reasons why I should stay and help as best I can in the fight for a better day. So he's so torn, you know, but he wants to stay. I, I, I think it means that, you know, he's frustrated and he's thinking, you know, how can this be? But I want to stay and fight for a better day. But honestly, I think he was tired, you know, after this, at this point, it would have been 17 years. And so I think that he's tired. But one of the things I loved about reading his letters and many of the other letters was his vulnerability and just putting it out there, you know, what am I going to do? You're listening to a conversation with Georgia College sociologist Sandra Godwin about her book, A White Liberal College President in the Jim Crow South, Guy Herbert Wells in the YWCA at Georgia State College for Women, 1934 through 1953. Godwin will lead a discussion on the book in a lecture presented by the Center for Georgia Studies on Thursday, February 10th. You can learn more on WRGC's Facebook page. But for now, we'll be right back with more of our conversation with Sandra Godwin after a short break. get us back onto the track of the narrative of your story um, and use the chronology of his time at Georgia State College for Women to talk about this idea that you just expressed about playing the middle. Now, Georgia State College for Women was not exactly a uh, choice destination for a guy, Herbert Wells. Uh, can you talk about the story of and some of the speculation about how he got to Milledgeville? Yes, and this takes us back to Delma Presley, the historian from uh, Georgia Southern. His theory is that the Board of Regents, the newly formed Board of Regents, had only been in operation for two years. They sent him to Georgia State College for Women as punishment for his liberal values on race, because when he was at South Georgia Teachers College, he worked with the scientist George Washington Carver, African-American man. What I mean by worked with him was he set up speaking events around the state with George Washington Carver, and this did not go over well with the Board of Regents, according to Presley. And he thought it was a, a punishment for his liberal values on race. And the BOR, it was approved in 1931. Its first year was 1932. And, you know, because of the depression and consolidation and saving money, and also the governor at the time, Governor Russell, was saying, let's make it more efficient. That was his plan. But what it meant was that there was no more local control. It had to be approved by the Board of Regents, everything. So it, it just changed, changed the landscape very much. And Presley thought that he was sent here as a punishment because Wells did not want to come to, to Georgia State College for Women, and he was very happy at South Georgia Teachers College. As I mentioned, he had helped move the college from two-year to four-year, and he and his wife, Ruby, were happy there. Right. 
And so, of course, um, as we continue on in this chronology, he comes to Milledgeville. Some see it as a, p- a possible punishment um, for some of the work that he had done at South Georgia Teachers College. And then talk about uh, one of the uh, crux incidents that you know, really sets up uh, the organizational structure of the book. Uh, can you talk about the Fort Valley trip uh, that these members of the YWCA took in these early years during the, the Wells tenure at Georgia State College of Women? Yes, it was referred to by Mrs. J.E. Andrews, who was a huge critic of the YWCA all across the South. She was a, a prominent woman from Atlanta who had a magazine called Georgia Woman's World. And the governor, Eugene Talmadge, actually knew of her magazine because he distributed 3,000 copies at a rally in the 30s. Not only did she have her own magazine, she was president of the Women's National Association for the Preservation of the White Race. But Mrs. J.E. Andrews somehow found out about this trip, and she called it the wild trip to Fort Valley. So in March of 1935, the students went to Fort Valley. The YWCA sponsored it. It was a small group of students. It had been approved. President Wells approved the trip, and they went to the college, Fort Valley Normal and Industrial School at the time. They met with the YMCA and the YWCA there. There was a performance by the Glee Club. They actually had tea, afternoon Sunday tea. Everything was great. But when the students came back over time and uh, they discovered that Mrs. J.E. Andrews had, she called President Wells before the trip. So it was like, I don't know how she found out about it. And then she called President Wells after the trip. What eventually happened with all of her critique is that uh, critique is a euphemism, (laughs) but Eugene Talmadge contacted President Wells and said, you need to go see her and deal with this. And again, he knew her. So I think he was on her side, actually. But President Wells went to see her in Atlanta. She was not home. So he sent Dean Ethel Adams, who was the Dean of Students at the time, and she visited her in Atlanta. So all of this created quite a stir and quite a problem for President Wells. He ended up addressing this issue for years to come in letters to various people when this would be brought up later on. So it had a real stigma for President Wells. So he was dealing with this trip, this wild trip to Fort Valley. And so now it seems silly, but, you know, this was extremely powerful and she was very media savvy and she knew how to work the public rounds, you know, the public relations issue and newspapers. And she had contacts. She was she was very savvy. Right. And you mentioned that uh, one of the first places Mrs. Andrews proffered her criticism uh, was to Eugene Talmadge. Uh, For audience members who may not be familiar with Eugene Talmadge in his place in Georgia history, uh, could you briefly describe him and tell us why he is such a foil for the people you document in this book? Yes. Well, he was governor in Georgia throughout the time that Wells was president of GSCW, either Eugene or Herman Talmadge was governor over the course of about 12 years, but not in succession. So there's a lot of back and forth of his elections and re-elections and various issues that happened in the state regarding the, the gubernatorial races and the governor's positions. But I will just say that I really like how Patrick Novotny, another historian, describes Talmadge, and I think this is very fitting. He calls it Talmadge populism. He says that when these events like the the labor movement, the race movement, the interracial, intercollegiate movement of the YWCA at this time, the Southern Conference for Human Welfare, all of these things that Sullivan is saying is breaking up the solid South. Novotny says that Talmadge populism It was an amalgam of racism, isolationism in international affairs, and a suspicion of those whom he considered to be outsiders or foreigners, as he termed those born outside Georgia. So on the cover of the book, Mercer University Press did a fabulous job, I think, with the cover. 
and they have the sort of ghostly image of Talmadge behind Wells and on his right. And that's exactly where he should be because he's always lingering back there, you know, and if it's not Eugene, it's Herman. So Talmadge was very good at whipping up a white audience in this frenzy of how Black Americans are going to displace them and have a racial hierarchy now with Black Americans on top. You know, so he was very good at that. And Helen, Helen told me that he used to wear these red suspenders at, at a lot of the rallies. So you can see the YWCA's agenda very much the opposite of that. And so, of course, uh, as you describe with the book cover, uh, after this trip to Fort Valley, it just puts Wells at the center of these two polar opposites, uh, the YWCA and then the, uh, I would just say the white power structure uh, that existed at that time. Uh, now, you organized your book uh, around um, the ways that he had to learn to, again, uh, play the middle between these two poles. Uh, can you talk about uh, the way that you present Guy Wells' turmoil in, in the course of these lessons and how he learned to play the middle you know, during the course of his tenure? We would not have a book about him learning to play the middle without the YWCA. So they helped him, <laughs> if you will, learn how to keep the YWCA open and running and the school open and running because there was threat, according to Polly Moss in the interview in the 1980s of GSCW losing their state appropriations. So his first lesson, which Polly Moss was a big part of in eight months after he got to GSCW was that he was going to have to keep an eye on the YWCA. So at that point, he realized how I did things at SGTC, South Georgia Teachers College, is not going to work here. So I'm going to have to do things a little differently here. So that got him thinking. And then also, again, because of the existence of the Board of Regents, he also, I think, was already primed that, okay, this is going to be a different story here. He knew he was going to have to work to, to play the middle there. And as the governorships changed, when Ellis Arnold came on board, he relaxed that a little bit. He relaxed the rules. He knew that he didn't have to be as vigilant by keeping an eye on the YWCA. So he relaxed it a little bit. And then he also, again, throughout the time, based on changing governors, changing political climate, he would provide the uneven support. And on the one hand, defending them, on the other hand, challenging them, making it difficult for them. And then finally, as he moves towards the end of his career and he's gotten pretty good at playing the middle and keeping the YWCA open because he did not want to abolish the YWCA as Mrs. J.E. Andrews and others wanted him to. And he managed to keep the, the YWCA open and running. But by the end, he's uh, getting ready to retire He's looking for other work. He goes on to work in Libya for a while, working with their education system there. So as he's getting more public support for how he handled the, the Ku Klux Klan's burning of the cross on the yard of the old governor's mansion towards the end of his career in 1948, he began to get a lot of public support for that. That also kind of helped him relax a little bit as he was getting ready to retire. And also as the YWCA's popularity declined at every level, really, regional, uh, national. Would you say that he was successful at playing the middle? And you know, how would you define you know, his success or lack thereof? What, what are the context for you know, whether he was good at this playing this middle and, and what that overall effect was? Yes, I do think he was good at it, but there's a downside to that moderation. And the downside, I believe, is that, and I think this holds relevant for today, I don't think we should be bipartisan just for the sake of being bipartisan. I think that sometimes we do have to fight, we do have to speak up, we do have to draw those lines sometimes and say, you know what, I am not going to try to compromise here. 
you know, even as I say that I cringe a little bit, like, oh, is that really what I'm thinking? But I honestly think that sometimes compromise is not the answer. And that I feel like for Georgia State College for Women and Georgia College, as it exists today, if Wells had been a little less good at playing the middle, that maybe his ability to be a president with liberal values and and say yes that's who i am and yes this is what we're doing i don't know to the extent that he could i don't know then i gotta think about eugene talmage but anyway i think if he could have done that more and played the middle less and taken a left side more that we as a university today and our student body and our faculty body could be more racially and economically diverse, at least as far as the student body, economically diverse and and racially diverse. So, you know, I think it's an open question. I don't think we really know the answer to that, but I would like to think that the moderation maybe is overrated and that sometimes we have to speak out. Let me just say quickly that one of the downsides as well is that of his moderation is that he was not able to publicly praise these amazing women who were courageous and who were speaking out and who paid the price. And uh, as I discussed in the book, Polly Moss was forced to resign. And I think Guy Wells forced her to resign through all of these things that happened with the trip to Fort Valley. So for one of the downsides, I think, of his moderation is that he was never able to publicly say, these women are amazing. Look at what they have done. Because instead what happened in some of the letters, he said that people will say to me, look at, speaking particularly of of one student who I mentioned in the text that we haven't mentioned today, but who was incredible. And he said, people will say to me about her, look at and about polymos look at what gscw has done to them in a negative way so using them as a cautionary tale and i think yes look what gscw has done to them turning them into these activists is is what the negative is (laughs) absolutely so that was one of the downsides daniel was that he uh, an additional downside that his he could he couldn't publicly praise these women I think a lot of the focus on the book probably falls on the one individual of Guy Herbert Wells. But as you were describing some of the excellent people that this institution and especially this organization, the YWCA, produced, I want to use a last question to kind of reflect on uh, the lessons that they and, you know, kind of the untamed quality of youth and the desire for a better future may have to teach all of us. Uh, What did the women who animated the YWCA teach you? They taught me that I should speak up more. (laughs) So I think it's difficult to do that, but I think it's absolutely necessary. And maybe my speaking up is not going to change anything, but if you can get a lot of people speaking up, that's even better. And so sometimes it takes one person speaking up, you know, we all kind of understand that. But that's what they have taught me. And I see young people doing that today, especially I'm thinking about climate change. I see a lot of young people speaking up about climate change, and that we've got to change our ways. But also when it comes to gender, race, social class, ability, all of these hierarchical systems that we have in place that, uh, you know, I see young people speaking up today a a great deal. And the young people of the YWCA were doing that in the 30s, these young white women who were trying to do what they thought was right and working for racial justice. Well, Sandra Godwin. Professor of Sociology at Georgia College and author of the book, A White Liberal College President in the Jim Crow South, Guy Herbert Wells in the YWCA at Georgia State College for Women, 1934 through 1953. I want to thank you for joining me today on Georgia College Connections.
You've been listening to a conversation with Georgia College sociologist Sandra Godwin about her book, A White Liberal College President in the Jim Crow South. Guy Herbert Wells in the YWCA at Georgia State College for Women, 1934 through 1953. Godwin will lead a discussion on the book in a lecture presented by the Center for Georgia Studies on Thursday, February 10th. You can learn more about the lecture and find out how to participate via Zoom on WRGC's Facebook page. But on behalf of WRGC 88.3 FM, I have been your host, Daniel McDonald. I want to thank you for spending this portion of your evening with me here on Georgia College Connections. I hope you enjoyed our time together, and I want you to know that I look forward to convening with you again next time.